This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. At what age did you enter adolescence? When did you become an adult? Those used to be pretty easy questions to answer. Most of us who were born before 1980 would probably say that our adolescence began at around 13 years of age and that we became adults at around 18. That age range reflects the thinking in most industrialized societies where adulthood typically is defined by law and generally begins at 18. But this well-worn definition is not internally consistent, at least within the United States, where we can be drafted into the Army or stand trial as an adult at 18, depending on the crime. In some states, even children as young as 13 can be tried as adults. But we can't legally purchase or drink liquor until 21. By contrast, traditional and tribal societies often define the start of adulthood as the age at which adolescent boys and girls achieve various milestones or rites of passage, such as when a boy kills his first big game or a girl gives birth to her first child. In some of these societies, adolescence may last only two or three years. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about adolescence, but we're going to be focusing on one specific part of it, risk. Why do they take so many risks? And more importantly, what can we do to keep them safe? We'll jump into all that in great detail when Positive Parenting continues right after this. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Jess Shatkin, who's the author of Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Jess, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start talking about I guess, something that, that may sound a little silly, but how do you define a teenager these days? It seems, yeah. you know, it seems there, there's the chronological part, but then there's also other ways. Yeah, well, in my field as a psychiatrist or a physician, I would think of it more as an adolescent. In fact, the publisher and I did a few rounds on whether we, we talk about it as a book for teens or a book for adolescents. I, I wanted adolescents, but teens is a more catchy title, I think. So yeah. you know, when we think about adolescents these days, which we used to all equate with teenage years, 12, 13 to 18, 19, these days, adolescents, as our understanding of neurobiology and science has grown, really makes us think from like, 11, 12, 13 to about at least 25, 26, at least. And how do we define that? You know, there's lots of different measures in, in how to define that. I mean, in Latin, the adolescere, the word for adolescence, really means to grow up. And by all counts, we are giving our kids more time to grow up now than we used to in the past. We're giving them time to go to college. More kids go to college than ever before. More kids finish college than ever before. We give them opportunities after college to do internships take time away and work some different jobs. The average age of medical students who start medical school in the U.S. these days is 25. It used to be 21. 
22. Hmm. So everybody's getting a little more time, and so we're appreciating, I think, that adolescence is an extended period of, period of growing up, which probably takes at least, in, in Western societies, 10 to 12 years. Uh, do you think that's a good thing, or are we coddling kids for an extra four years? Yeah, that's a question that we hear a lot, right, as a, as a, just in public, as parents, teenagers, myself, or whether it's... Um, something we hear from from the press. Yes, I think it's a great thing, personally. I think that what we're giving our kids is an extended opportunity for neurobiologically, in fact, their gray, their, their, their gray matter, the, the neurons in their head to grow. We're giving them more time to explore the world, more time to venture out, and the result of that is a more flexible brain, an opportunity to see the world in terms and ways that perhaps their parents didn't see it. And that is a huge growth-based opportunity. How does that work that they're getting, you're talking that they have a more flexible brain and they're seeing the world in a different way. How, how is that? I mean, yeah, we're so eventually going to get to the same place, right? That's right, but maybe differently. So, the, you know, in brief, I'll try not to be too, you know, nerd out on science with you, but our brain is constructed of two general types of tissues, gray matter, which is the neuron cells themselves, and they move in lots of different ways and connect to each other. And then white matter, which is called myelin, which is a fatty sheath that allows the signals to move faster and more productively between areas of the brain. And what really changes with age is not so much the, the I mean, the growth of neurons is part of it, but also how the brain talks to itself in different ways. So with more education, with more time to not have to take on big adult responsibilities like buying a house and having kids at age 20. 22, giving people more time to learn and expand their childhood, they actually take a little longer, maybe a few years longer, to lay down that white matter. And what that makes is what we call a more plastic or more flexible brain, a brain that's open to more things. And we know from the animal kingdom that animals that have a longer childhood are more flexible adults. More flexible adults means more creative with finding food sources, finding nesting areas, and the same thing with humans. Those humans who tend to go to school later, who go to grad school or law school or med school later, they tend to be more flexible in their thinking because they've had other experiences. Hmm. And as someone who's run a residency program, technically a fellowship in child adolescent psychiatry for a dozen years, I like the residents who took four or five years off after college before they went to medical school. Mm -hmm. They're usually more interesting. They usually have more experience. They usually see the world in a more varied way. Yeah. And they usually make better doctors. You know, it's interesting. I, I did uh, some interviews years ago with uh, admissions directors at colleges and heard almost word for word the same thing uh, about kids who had taken a gap year. Just, that, yeah. just that extra year after high school gave kids a lot more flexibility and made them much more interesting members of incoming freshman classes. Yeah, and they add to the diversity of the class. They help their peers to learn better, yeah. and they are a little less frazzled by some of the things because they live a little more life. So you know, it's really the and we see this, the more education, the quality of the white matter seems to improve, the expansion of the gray matter seems to improve. So, you know, people really do think differently with a little more time to grow up. I understand the concern people have, uh, parents, society, are we coddling them? But there's, there's a difference between coddling and giving people, saying, yes, live at home the rest of your life, I'll pay for your phone until <laughs> you're 40 years old. That's not the same thing I'm talking about. I'm right. talking about giving people an opportunity for an extended education. I'm talking about um, giving them an opportunity to still be active athletically, to to travel a bit, and some sure. costs money and some doesn't. But yeah. it's not 
it's not just like saying live off the dole and everything will be fine. That's not the intention. Right. What what I was sort of thinking was about was these issues where it's become pretty much common knowledge these days that the adolescent brain isn't fully developed until the 20s or something like that. And and that it's become such common knowledge that kids are now throwing that back at, at parents. I mean, there, there's rather than, you know, a, a, a small dialogue of why won't you take more responsibility for yourself? It's, well, I'm just a kid and my brain isn't fully developed. And, and it becomes right. used as an excuse for for unfortunate behavior. And it, I think it also may be used as an excuse for parents for continuing to do things for their kids or to not have expectations for their kids because their brains aren't fully developed when yeah you know, you know, you know i'm going with that yeah okay. no i do and i and i one of the things i say in the book is that we should never and i put never in parentheses but you know pretty much almost never do things for our kids that they can do for themselves so their homework making their beds choosing their clothes you know the kinds of things that they can do for themselves that we can supervise and still have authority over but make sure they get done well we should be having them doing that's how they learn responsibility but they learn it under our stewardship and with us shepherding them to be responsible in their choices the excuse of oh i'm just too young my brain etc that's not a good excuse of course because they they can know better the, the, what the book really talks about and, and as a psychiatrist and as a speaker the kind of thing that that i talk about that i'm quite concerned about parents understanding is that, and the book is filled with this, is about how to talk to your kids about these things. I think kids should be taught this neurobiology in a very practical and useful way in schools. I think it will inform them, but it won't give them excuses. In fact, if anything, I think it will give them an opportunity to think about how to enhance the way they think, the way they learn, and for adults, parents, teachers, policymakers, to understand how to talk to kids about these issues, because there are different ways to talk than we often have been talking, and, and it's, it's because we haven't understood the brain. So yes, you're right, for the past decade, most of us who've been paying attention know that the adolescent brain isn't fully formed yet, if you like, or fully networked. That's true. But what we haven't really done, and there's other things too we can talk about beyond that. That's one That's one piece of this book, but that's really only a chapter of this book because that story is pretty well known. I'm just catching readers up. But the rest of it is how we, how we take what we now know about dopamine and about hormones and about evolution and peer pressure and peer effects and turn that into a different type of support for kids so they're not getting in so much trouble. Well, let's talk about the, the focus of the book, or at least the title of the book, about how this applies to risk-taking behavior, the, the sure. development, the lack of development of the brain, or mm-hmm. however you want to phrase that. Yeah, well, you know, I think the most important point is to recognize that adolescents are engineered to take risks. They are built to take risks. They have the best immune system of our species. Between the ages of 13 to 26 or so, their immune system is better than it will ever be and ever has been before. They think faster. Their bodies are stronger. They recover from injury more quickly. They can tolerate greater extremes of heat and cold and even tolerate more pain than we can before and after. And there's a reason for that. Because we need these young people to go out and run across the savanna and find a new water source, find a new mate, find a new food. And evolution, Mother Nature, whatever you believe in, is very happy to see some adolescents, thousands of adolescents, die in an effort for millions of our species to live on. So they take risk because they're engineered for it. The brain story between the frontal cortex or prefrontal cortex and the limbic system with the emotional brain, that's part of the story. But other things are going on too. Dopamine, for example, that things feel good. Rewards feel better as an adolescent than ever again. 
roller coaster rides are more thrilling, sex is more intriguing, chocolate tastes better. These are so kids will explore and find things that work. And yes, again, some will eat the wrong plant and die. But okay, <laughs> the others will learn, oh, don't eat that plant. Let's try this one. And we need the adolescents to do this kind of exploration. Hormones, testosterone, oxytocin, estrogen, these are all about how kids engage with each other. Talking with Jess Shatkin, who is the author of Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Keep Them Safe. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jess and get uh, continue with this discussion again to a lot more. I'm Armin Brant. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Jess Shatkin, who's the author of Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Jess, you were just talking about dopamine and oxytocin and all sorts of uh, hormones that are out there driving those kids to run across the savanna. Um, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, so I'm just suggesting that, again, we are built by evolution, uniquely built during our adolescent years to take risks. And, and so part of the whole message the evolutionary component, the effects of peers and how they drive kids to take more risks. The reason I write so much about that in the book, I spend three or four chapters on that material, is really to, five chapters actually, is really to help parents establish a little more empathy for the kids, understand where their kids are coming from, and then that allows us to think more about how they make decisions yeah. and the kinds of things that we need to do in order to help them make better decisions at those moments when it really matters. And that's the back to the idea of risk that you were talking about. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in adolescents and how they think and why they do what they do, but the reason I wrote the book is that I looked around, there were uh, stories on the prefrontal cortex and there were stories about the emotional brain, but there weren't stories about risk. And this is an issue that, um, that that really matters because it's the brain and the hormones that, that put the kids in these positions where they're driving drunk, right. having unprotected sex, jumping off the bridge into a rushing river because their friends are doing it, swimming across the river drunk because that's what people are doing. Right, and that's, I think, the most important part of the book as far as I'm concerned is, is the how do you talk to your kids about this because I think as you were talking and uh, I'm sure that as a lot of people who have teenagers who, you know, who may be listening to this are cringing when you said that Mother Nature is willing to sacrifice a few thousand for the continued existence of the species, you say, well, you know, that that's very fine for, for Mother Nature, but I, I would like to have my teenager around. Absolutely. Uh, I Absolutely. mean, that, that's, you know, where, where you say, well, nature's a lovely thing, but perhaps yeah. its its needs don't necessarily correlate with mine. Right. Uh, it's not a fuzzy message. And, yeah, and I get that, and I I, I say it, you know. Without no, I I, I think it's a, it's a it's a great way of looking at it, and I think it's an important way for us to look at it that this is why it's happening, but that doesn't make it any better necessarily when you're dealing with one of those kids who is no, I think that's right. You know, is, is doing some yeah. some stuff that we would sit back and say, God, that was stupid. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, again, part of the story is understanding where all this comes from, understanding that your kids aren't. Uh, driving fast when their friends are in the car or having unpredicted sex to spite you. They're doing it because they're driven to do it. And so our interventions, on the one hand, need to be very parent-focused. We need to monitor our kids closely, and we all know that. But we need to monitor more than we've been monitoring. And part of that is the Internet, and part of that is how they spend their time. And that's a focus of, of the book. There's a whole other focus on what the schools can do and, and how to parent specifically around these kinds of issues and how to talk to them about decisions and how to help them make decisions. And I can give you some examples. Yeah, please example. do. Yeah. So um, 
so the, the, and again, the, the, the book is replete with suggestions, so I, I, these are just a, a couple things that come to mind. But this, this may help parents think about how to talk to their kids differently than they've been talking to them before. So one of the things that happens with kids is, yes, they know, for example, that the risk of pregnancy is real if you have unprotected sex. In fact, the first chapter of the book is called Not Invincible, and it really turns a lot of our former thinking about risk on its head because in reality, most of our interventions, whether they're at school, like DARE programs or zero tolerance policies, or whether they're in society, like scared straight programs and driver's education, most of these programs are built upon the idea that kids are kind of little adults in their brain and that they think like us. And if they understand rationally why they shouldn't have sex, that the risk of pregnancy is high, that the risk of, of getting into an accident when you drink is really high, then they will not make those decisions. And that's how adults believe they think about risk. That's how adults think that adults think about risk is what I mean to say. We right. believe that we are very rational. But in fact, we make these decisions based upon past experience and intuition and having seen our friends get into accidents and all the rest of it. So what we do is we mistakenly, in our programming and our parenting, we mistakenly hammer our kids with statistics. We say, don't you know the risk of pregnancy is so high if you have unpredicted sex? Don't you know you could die when you go over the speed limit of driving? And so our kids believe it. Our kids trust us. And in fact, every adolescent and young adult who you talk to will give you inflated risk estimates of every single risky behavior. Ask a kid what the risk of pregnancy is from one time unprotected intercourse, and they'll tell you it's astronomically high, 90%. So their risk estimates are way off, but that doesn't stop them. So a lot of our parenting efforts, a lot of our teaching efforts, a lot of our societal programming efforts are built on the wrong thing. We're trying to give, teach them they are at risk, but they already believe they're at risk. They've heard it a million times, and so when we say it, they just tune out again. What we need to do is get to their emotional understanding of risk. And in addition to all the monitoring and everything else I talk about in the book and all the supportive parenting, we need to also get to their emotional thinking. So one way to do that is to help them to understand what it really means to be pregnant. So, for example, if you're concerned that your child may be sexually active or in the case of me, for example, as a um, as a child psychiatrist, adolescent psychiatrist, when I'm working with a kid who may be having sex or maybe thinking about having sex or you know, moving in that direction, what I will often do is start by saying, well, let's just say, you know, you got pregnant. Let's just say, is, is that likely to happen? Well, it's not likely to happen. I know the risk is really high, but it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me because I do a special precaution or whatever they think. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, well, let's just, let's just say crazy situation happens and you get pregnant. What would, what would that be like? And you walk them through these very specific emotional cues. Of like, so you get pregnant. Then do you tell your mate, boy, girl? Yes, no. Do you tell your parents? Oh, no, I don't. Do you have the baby or do you have an abortion? What, is that, what does your family think about abortion? What do you think about abortion? What, is, what do you think about the people who have had abortions? Do you, know anyone, do you know anyone who's had an abortion? What do you think about people who have a baby? Do people stay at high school for the nine months they're pregnant and then go off? So you have these very realistic conversations with them, and kids don't like to have these conversations. But in fact, when you do, they get much better at getting an emotional sense of things. And these are and, conversations that parents can have with the kids as well? Totally. And you can sit and you can really have these conversations. And the parents need to do this again and again, of course, in in natural circumstances and when it comes up. But kids get a much more visceral sense. And we know from research that when we believe we are viscerally vulnerable, like we know what that feels like, then we're more likely to stay away. We run across the savannah as an adolescent to get that wildebeest because we believe we can make it. We hope we can. And we don't think it's going to be as bad as it 
might potentially be, even though we know the risk is really high. We know that most of our friends get eaten, but we think we can do it. But the the real emotional sense of like, oh my God, here's what it feels like to be ripped apart by a tiger, or here's what it feels like to never be able to walk again. When you have that sense, you do take more precaution. So that's part of the story. Another part of the story, for example, very simply, is identifying with your kid what a red alert is. A red alert is when your kid's in trouble. So if you have a daughter, as I do, and your daughter isn't ready to have sexual intercourse, let's say, but has a boyfriend or is seeing people, then you need to realize that anytime she's alone with him, that's a red alert. Like, for example, at 3 o'clock when school gets out and they go back to their houses. You see this in every teenage movie from, you know, Fast Times at Richmond High to whatever they're making now, Mean Girls. When kids are left alone, they will get into mischief. And so we need to have conversations and set up precautions for red alerts. What's a red alert for your family? What does it look like? And what do you, you really need to schedule and make sure that there is coverage? And our society can, in that case, for example, be very helpful by uh, extending the school day and starting the school day later. The CDC, Center for Disease Control, has suggested for years that we should have later school start times. They've now come out with a number of 8.30 in the morning. Right. But I know they're doing that. Of schools, yeah. They're yeah, doing that a lot for, for high schools. It's, it's something that's coming up a lot these days. Yeah. Yeah. And only 20% of high schools start at uh, 8.30 or later. But we know that when kids have later school start times, their IQ points are higher on tests. They get into fewer car accidents both day and night. They have better grades. Grade points go up like mm-hmm. a half a point. Lots of good outcomes because their circadian rhythm is such that the adolescents were guarding the cave, so they needed to be up late at night and right. energetic. And right. so their natural rhythm sets them, sets them back. So these kinds of things, extending the school days, they've done in some countries like Iceland, and they've seen smoking rates go way down. They've seen marijuana use rates go down because the kids are now doing meaningful extracurricular activities, and they're at work at school while the parents are at work. Mm-hmm. Less time to hang out at the mall, get into mischief. Right. Well, there's, let me let me take you back there. just a second, just to to some some of these dialogues that we were talking about. So. I understand it. it makes great sense to bring in the, the emotional side, the visceral side, to get them to thinking a little bit more deeply about these issues rather than just the t- statistical likelihood that something could happen. But, right. okay, so that's us. We're giving them the, the, the logical, the rational, the emotional, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they go off and they hang out with their friends whose right. parents are not having these conversations with them. And then there is mm-hmm. this monster of peer pressure Right. out there, which can very, very quickly outweigh anything that yeah. we have, have said or done. And and I think certainly the conversations that you're talking about, the emotional side, gives us a little extra time uh, or maybe mm-hmm. a little extra weight if you put peer pressure and parental uh, in, involvement mm-hmm. on the other side, uh, sides of, mm-hmm. a, of a scale. But h- how do we deal with peer pressure? How do we understand that? How do we get yeah. them to be able so, to think rationally when their friends say, ah, Right. You're pay- I understand all that, but I've never never met anybody who got pregnant, or don't worry about it. It never happens. Yeah. Well, following on the heels of those conversations that parents have, there's another thing they have to do, and that is to really plan out decision pathways. They have to work through with their kids what they're going to do when they're in, they're in these situations. Because there's absolutely no doubt that if your kid is a typically developing kid and they go to high school in America, that they will be exposed to marijuana, cigarettes, and alcohol and other drugs by the time they graduate. They'll be exposed to kids who are having sex. They'll be exposed to bullying. They'll be exposed to driving fast if you're in a place where kids drive cars, not New York City, for example, but anywhere else. So you you know these things are going to happen. And as parents, it's really incumbent upon us to be 
straight with ourselves, not to give ourselves some little fantasy like, oh, my kid won't engage in that, because your kid wouldn't engage in that in a moment of what we call cold cognition. When you're having a conversation with your child at 17, 18, 19, 14 years of age, they make really good con- make really good decisions. You say across the dinner table, is it a good idea to drive drunk? Is it a good idea to set your hair on fire? Whatever you say, the kids get the right answer. They think like adults in that way after the age of 16, almost 100%. It's when they're around their peers, as you point out, when they're yeah. in a moment of what we call hot cognition, peer pressure, they've had a, something to drink, they're underslept because their early school start times are over-caffeinated because they've been taking tests and they're staying up for that. So at these moments, our kids often make very bad decisions. So after we have those emo- emotional sort of moments that I was describing earlier with our kids about what does it feel like to actually be pregnant or get into a car accident, we then say, okay, so how do we handle it? Because it's going to happen. It's, you're going to be at a party if you haven't already. I mean, by the time kids graduate high school, 45%, a little bit more, have tried marijuana. More than two-thirds have had sex. By the time they graduate high school in America, on average. So let's not kid ourselves. More than two-thirds have been drunk. So these things are going to happen, and we need to have preparatory conversations with them. Yeah. So that means, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And sometimes, we might certain kids who hang out with certain other kids may come up with a white lie, like, my parents drug test me. I can't, whatever. Yeah. But we don't have to even go that far. Off. Right. We just, can do things like. No, we, anyway. we've, we've got to stop. I have to get people. Oh, to I'm get sorry. To a, you have to, you'll have to find out the, the secret <laughs> conversations in uh, Jess Shatkin's book, Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Jeff, uh, uh, Jess, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Hello and welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, and we're going to talk about teens and their sometimes often unexplainable behavior. Dear Mr. Dad, if I wasn't in the delivery room for my daughter's birth, I'd swear that she had a secret identical twin. Sometimes she's delightful and lovely to be around. Other times she's a nightmare. Some days she seems to love us and need us. Other days she's hateful and nasty. People keep telling me to relax. It's just She's just a normal teen. I know they're right but her schizophrenic behavior is driving us crazy. Is there some way to get rid of some of the downs but keep the ups? I wish that nature had come up with a better way for young people to discover their adult identity, but I'm afraid we're stuck with this one. Their logic-defying careening back and forth between being an irrational infant one second to being wise and wonderful the next is part of the deal. But think about it this way. While it's confusing and painful for us, it's got to be a whole lot worse for them. Actually, if you think back really hard to when you were your daughter's age, you may be able to remember how scary it felt at those times when you had no idea what you might do or what might come out of your mouth. You may be able to get back in touch with the emotional highs and lows you felt, how infuriating it was that no one understood you, and how frustrating it was that everyone insisted on treating you like a child and refused to give you the responsibility you thought you were ready for. You felt completely out of control, and you were actually right. Adolescence is a time of real upheaval, when our mind, body, and everything else is constantly changing. Teens are struggling to figure out where they fit in the world, and they're trying on different feelings and moods. Throw in a still-developing brain that's being assaulted by hormones, and you've got a bunch of Frankenstein-like creatures that the world doesn't understand and who don't understand themselves either. And it keeps getting worse. 
Parents fear teens' volatility, rightfully so. Their teachers push them to succeed academically, and their peers push them to conform socially and physically, which makes it hard for them to maintain their individuality. Fortunately, it's not all bad. Your daughter is going to experience things she'll never forget, like her first date, prom, and getting her driver's license. She may never feel things, the highs or the lows, as keenly as she does now, and someday she may remember these years with a touch of fondness. As a parent, you're going to struggle too. You'll need to be authoritative, not authoritarian. And you'll need to be protective, but maintain a respectful, loving distance. In other words, be there for her, but do so without looking like you are. It's natural to want to know everything that your daughter is going to do at every second, but trying to make that a reality will backfire and alienate her. As a rule, treat your daughter like an adult until you notice that she needs some parental intervention. She's doing everything she can to establish her independence, and even though it's going to be hard, it's best to try to respect her privacy and rights. At the same time, act quickly when things don't go according to plan. Hopefully that won't be a problem. You've known your daughter long enough to know when she truly needs your help and when she just needs a little time and space to figure things out for herself. Let her have her adult moments, but be there for her as a coach, a mentor, a guide, and, of course, a parent when she needs any one of those. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can do that through our website, mrdad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and some of your comments actually make it into future shows. We'll be back next week. But you know what? There's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. You hear it every time you finish a meal and never feel anything. But if we were able to associate this sound with a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural response from you. Save the food. Why are we doing this, you may ask. Save the food, because this ad is trying to change your after-meal behaviour through brainwashing. Because food waste costs the average family $1,500 a year. Save the food, cha-ching. And $1,500 extra bucks is like getting a pay raise. Save the food, cha-ching. You're promoted. Which could pay for your child's braces. Save the food, cha-ching. You're promoted. Check out my braces. So when you hear this sound, rethink your behaviour. Cook it. Store it. Share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Nearly every day we hear troubling stories of at-risk children who struggle in school. They act out for attention and misbehave. In the worst cases, they turn to drugs and alcohol or join gangs and find security in a world that seems alien and uncomfortable. But why do they do this? Well, according to my guest for this part of today's show, it all begins in the brain. 
And he starts with discussing how it is that a mother's exposure to toxins such as illicit drugs and alcohol during pregnancy can affect the growing fetus, as well as how a child's experience of trauma and neglect in early life may damage the child's developing nervous system. And that damage may lead to learning and memory deficiencies and a host of behavioral problems, everything from chronic temper tantrums in early childhood to acts of physical and sexual violence in later adolescence. That sounds a little depressing, but it's not going to be because our guest is also going to get into a lot of problem-solving approaches to behavior management. And he's got a lot of research-proven tips and intervention strategies that parents and teachers can use at home and in school. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start talking about the mystery of risk, what it is, where it comes from, and more importantly, what we can do about it, when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Chris, you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2. There's your comic book collection, the race car bed. I'm young at heart, but I put money into my 401k every paycheck. I'm taking control over my financial life, and that feels pretty grown-up to me. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Are those footy pajamas? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Ira Chasnoff, who is the author of The Mystery of Risk, Drugs, Alcohol, Pregnancy, and the Vulnerable Child. Ira, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, let's talk about pregnancy. Let's start with pregnancy because it's it's obviously where everything begins as far as mm-hmm. people go. Um you know, there there's a lot of people now who are, are being told. I was just actually teaching my class for expectant fathers, and there was a big discussion going on about uh, a lot of the guys, why the uh, OBs had told the wife that it's okay to have a glass or two of wine from time to time. And I remember not all that long ago, it was absolutely taboo to say anything about that. But now it's getting to be much more more common. Uh, although I th- still think there are a lot of people who are probably uh, afraid of lawsuits and would refrain from suggesting that. And as medical marijuana gets to be more and more common and more and more legal, there are a lot of women who are saying, well, if it's legal, it must be okay during pregnancy then. And uh, I, I actually heard you speak at a conference in D.C. Uh, several months ago and was intrigued by this whole idea of, of what's going on. So tell us about the importance of pregnancy and how important it is to stay away from stuff. Okay. Yeah, I know there's a lot of uh, questions out there and, and, you know, so-called controversy, but the science is is very clear. So here's what uh, prospective parents have to consider. Any substance a woman takes, whether it's uh, nicotine or alcohol or marijuana or something stronger, it's going to cross the placenta and will reach the fetus. And when you do studies of the fetus and look for concentrations of the drug, you know, where is the drug in the fetus, the greatest concentrations are in the fetal brain. So the main effect we see from all substances is effects on the developing fetal brain. 
And that's what has the greatest impact over the long term. So bottom line, it's not safe to drink, to smoke, to use marijuana or any other drug during pregnancy, period. At all. There, At there, all. there are no, you're saying there are no safe limits. There is no safe amount that you can, you can use or drink. Okay. Now, uh, people push back on that and saying, well, you know, a little bit is okay. And probably for some people, a little bit may be okay. But there are all sorts of factors that come into it. It's not only the, you know, the chemistry of the drug. It also has to do with genetics, and we've published a lot of twin studies where a mother has, for instance, had alcohol during the pregnancy, and one twin is severely affected, and the other twin is completely fine. And those, you know, there are big fancy names for what the, the, it's called discordant teratogenesis, which is not important. What is important is that there are factors that we can't predict. We don't know how genetically vulnerable a fetus is to any of these substances. So absolutely, the only right thing to say from a physician to a patient is there is no amount of, of drug or alcohol that's safe to use. Yeah. I'm not a physician, but I was I was making a similar case is that there, for a an OB to say a glass of wine is okay is such an open-ended thing because it would a lot of it's going to have to depend on the, the weight of the mother and where you are in the pregnancy and whether she has certain genes that make her more likely to, to process alcohol differently than other people. I mean, there's so many Absolutely. factors. So, uh, you know, saying something as open-ended as a glass of wine or three drops of a medical marijuana compound or something, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's empty and doesn't do anybody any good, I think, to have something yeah. that says as... Yeah ill-defined as that, I guess. And the other factor that comes into this, too, on the part of physicians in our own work, we have found many physicians are not aware of the most recent science around any of these substances. Uh, For instance, marijuana. If a woman uses marijuana in the first month after conception, there's a significantly higher rate of babies being born missing the front part of their brain. Now, the majority of physicians are not even aware of that, but that's published science. Well, but I think the pushback on that one might be is that the percentage of babies born missing the front part of the brain is incredibly small anyway. So if you even, if you doubled that or tripled it, you're still into something that's impossible to predict. That's absolutely. And, and you know, the probability of it happening is still not very great. But it's greater than if you didn't smoke that marijuana. Right. So right, exactly. people do have exactly. to have yeah. to make a choice. You know, am I going to take that risk for my child or not? Well, I think another part of this is important. Part of this is to look at, and I want to look at this more. We've got to t- take a break in a couple of minutes, but more in the second part mm-hmm. um, about how this affects kids, because I think a, a natural response is well. Okay, so we know if I drink alcohol that the majority of the influence of the alcohol is going to go to my brain. And Mm -hmm. after a couple hours, I'm fine. So Mm -hmm. couldn't we apply the same sort of logic to the fetal brain? You're saying that the marijuana or whatever it is, the vast majority of it when you measure the concentrations is in the fetal brain. So after a couple hours, that should, should work its way out of their system and we should be fine. 
Mm-hmm. It's a nice thought, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So straighten this out. Yeah. Um, yeah. As it crosses into the fetal brain, it will remain there. Marijuana, for example, is very soluble in fat. That means it dissolves into fat and stays into fat for a long time, which is why an adult who uses marijuana can have a positive urine toxicology for up to two weeks after using the marijuana. Um, So, and the fetal brain is even, as it's developing, is even a higher proportion of fat. So uh, you have some permanent effects, changes in the way the brain is developing in the fetus when a woman smokes marijuana during pregnancy or alcohol or any of the other substances you want to talk about. Okay. You know, I actually was, was looking at the clock wrong. We have a couple of minutes until the break, so let's just do it. So how else does that affect the fetal brain? Well, you know, the different drugs affect different parts of the fetal brain. So let's, take, let's talk about the most common. Nicotine, cigarette smoking during pregnancy, uh, nicotine crosses into the fetal brain and affects the front part of the brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex and affects the way that, that the child long-term then is able to regulate behavior, to think ahead for consequences. Uh, the, the, the prefrontal cortex is responsible for how you function on a daily basis and make decisions. Um, alcohol, on the other hand, although it can affect a little bit the prefrontal cortex, it has a lot of impact on the midsection of the brain. That's called the limbic system. And what you can get there is actual uh, malformations of the inner part of the brain. Some babies born, depending on timing when the mother drank, uh, could be born missing a whole section of their brain. Uh, In latter pregnancy, the alcohol affects the cerebral cortex, that is the the outer shell of the brain, and has a great impact on IQ uh, and can cause a significant intellectual disability. Uh, what people used to call mental retardation. So the part of the brain that's affected depends on which, which drug the woman is using, as well as when during the pregnancy she uses it. Now, are there things that women can do if they've already done some of these no-nos? Yeah, the, the best thing, of course, is to stop. And then the next thing, talk to her doctor. Now, there, I want to make it clear, there is no indication for terminating the pregnancy uh, because a woman has had alcohol or marijuana or anything else, but she does need to stop because clearly the sooner you stop and become abstinent from all substances, right. the better for the child. Okay. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ira Chasnoff, who's the author of The Mystery of Risk, Drugs, Alcohol, Pregnancy, and the Vulnerable Child. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Ira about risk and pregnancy, and I want to get into some of the additional things that are happening further out in childhood, some of the, the manifestations of this drug use that's uh, happening before. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. 
I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Ira Chasnoff, the author of The Mystery of Risk, Drugs, Alcohol, Pregnancy, and the Vulnerable Child. So let's talk uh, a little bit more about, and I know that it's the answer is going to be a similar one to, to the one you, ju- one you just gave about the, the manifestations mm-hmm. of, of uh, drug use during pregnancy, how that mm-hmm. shows up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the kid's going to be different depending on the drug. But right. generally speaking, there this is something that, is not just happening during the pregnancy that you're talking about kids who are born with with brain deformities or kids who are born with other other issues. So t- talk about some right. of those as, as as we get out into childhood a little bit. Sure. The only drug that affects uh, for instance IQ is alcohol. The other drugs uh, nicotine, marijuana, you know, the hard drugs like heroin don't affect the child's IQ. So a lot of people say, oh, well, if the child is smart, if he has a normal IQ, then, you know, the drugs didn't do it, have any harm. But there are much more subtle difficulties that can occur. And the most common fall into three categories. Uh, the first is called neurocognitive functioning. But what that really means is the ability to think ahead, to uh, plan and complete a task, to follow directions, uh, to understand the consequences of behavior. Uh, it also can, that area can uh, be, it can affect, uh, you know, cause learning disabilities, problems with memory. So that's one whole area. And the main substances that can cause these kinds of difficulties uh, really lie in the range of the alcohol. Uh, there can be some of that with some of the other substances, but mainly it's alcohol that uh, affects those arenas. Is the it... second area is called uh, self-regulation, the ability to regulate behavior. And this is not only alcohol, but it, this is where marijuana comes into play. Uh, the so-called hard drugs such as cocaine, heroin, can cause difficulties with uh, regulating behavior, uh, staying on task, paying attention. Uh, a lot of these children end up with uh, getting diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So it's that self-regulation that really uh, affects the children. And that's just about all the substances, including nicotine. And this really shows up and has an impact on educational attainment. And the third area is something called adaptive behavior. That is the ability to take uh, what you know and apply it to daily living skills, like understanding money, uh, understanding how to read a map or a bus schedule. Uh, It's day-to-day planning and follow-through. The main substance that affects uh, uh, adaptive behaviors is alcohol. 
uh, the other drugs don't have much impact. So what you can see, depending on which substance the woman has used, uh, it can be a combination of any or all of those three areas of functioning. And these, any one area can have significant impact on the child's daily life as he grows older, uh, including both at home and at school, right. and can right. manifest uh, most often in behavior problems and erratic behaviors that people just don't understand. Now, is there anything that can be done with these kids after they're already born? Or are they just sentenced or doomed to a lifetime of this sort of behavior? I mean, are, are because no. of the mechanism that this was introduced, because it was alcohol or because it was marijuana or, or nicotine, whatever it is, is there something, some diet or behavior types of things that can be done to help kids with this? Or again, sure, are absolutely. they? Absolutely. There, there, there are interventions uh, that really do work and improve long term outcomes. And the key here is early intervention. The earlier the child can receive interventions, uh, the more successful those interventions will be. So what we, um, what, what we know from research, especially around alcohol, if a child is identified as being affected by prenatal substance exposure and receives interventions before the age of about six, the child is going to do much, much better long term. Hmm. So the whole key is prevention, of course, uh, getting families to understand that you can't use any of these substances during pregnancy. And the next step is if you do use, the earlier you get interventions for the child, uh, the better. Uh, Which even means that you have to identify, have, right? That that's, that's going to identify. And that's an issue, you know, helping physicians learn to identify these children. Um, right. And, and making, so, it, making it a little bit more, I, I don't know, I don't even want to say exactly less punitive perhaps to, for the mothers to admit that this is what the issue is because that's probably the best way that the physicians are going to identify it. But I would imagine there's such a big stigma that most of the women who are ingesting these substances know somewhere, whether it's deep down inside or right up front, <laughs> that they shouldn't be doing it. Right. So and they so may not want to admit it later on. Yeah, We have to remove the stigma. We have to remove the heavy arm of the law. And we have to take public health approaches so that we encourage people to speak openly to their physicians, uh, especially if they've had a child and they're seeing a pediatrician or you know a nurse practitioner or a family physician, uh, to be upfront. Uh, you know, nobody... These women, well, many of them may need treatment. So one of the aspects, of course, is referring the woman to treatment, but the other is getting the child can to intervention services. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, what else do we need to know about what can what can other people do? I mean, to, for example, the role of the father. That was actually the the conference that I uh, that I yeah. heard you speak at was a. A conference that was dealing a lot with the fathers and their role. What can the dads do to help out with this besides slap hands? <laughs> well, actually, the dads have to go back uh, and think through their role in conception. We know any substance a man takes, any of these substances we're talking about, crosses over into the semen and uh, has ac direct access to the sperm that a man is producing. 
so uh, we know the main effect is that the sperm uh, die when exposed. So men who are using any of these substances have lower sperm counts. And so they do, um, they do have more trouble conceiving. Now, this is not a form of birth control, of course, because you still can conceive while using these substances. So the next role of the man is after, you know, after conception uh, is to become drug-free so that he encourages his wife or partner to become drug-free also. Uh, this is a family approach. And when you have the support of the male partner, uh, you're going to have much more success in the woman achieving sobriety yeah. and a drug-free status. Now, one of the things I remember you mentioning at your, your talk at the conference was not only that it can produce infertility, but also that the sperm can be deformed and can yes. produce uh, problems in the fetuses as well. Well, uh, <laughs> this is getting into Possibly. some very new science that uh, is not quite as clear. Uh, what we know is that it can cause changes in the sperm, and those changes in the sperm, if the man conceives, are passed down to the next generation of males, and which causes the same changes in the male offspring sperm. Now, this all this information is from animal studies. Uh, this has not been done in human studies. So, uh, you know, that information is not quite as clear, so we have to be very careful with it. Uh, but if a man's going to conceive, if they're planning a pregnancy, or if he's having unprotected sex, the best thing he can do is stay drug and alcohol free. Um, now, you know, a lot of people aren't going to buy that. Uh, but at least uh, if we can get people to at least think about it, we will have accomplished something. Well, even if it's not just for what his effect specifically on the fetus, it's his role model effect. I mean, if he's smoking, it's going to be harder for her to stop, uh, right? Right. And if he's taking drugs, it's going to be harder for her to stop. So his certainly not doing it is uh, increases the chances that she'll not do it. Right. And and I think we have to get away from the practice of thinking of the mother and the father. Uh, Separately, you have to exactly. look at a family unit and how does the family function best. Right. And families will function best when they're drug and alcohol free. Ira Chasnoff is the author of The Mystery of Risk, Drugs, Alcohol, Pregnancy, and the Vulnerable Child. Ira, thanks very much. Uh, tell us your oh, website real welcome. quick. Uh, com, and there, you can find the book there. Yeah, And there are some other great resources there as well. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.